When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. What follows is an almost hour and a half chat with Real Housewives of Beverly Hills, Taylor Armstrong. We talk about it all. Of course, the first three seasons when she was a diamond holder. Kennedy's $50,000 birthday party, I think has ruined children's birthday parties everywhere for everyone. We talk about the pivotal scene in which Lisa Vanderpump and Camille Grammer kind of bring up her abuse for the first time on the show, R-H-O-B-H. And we do talk about the dinner party from hell before we knew what dinner parties from hell were. Alison Dubois, many e-cigarettes, Faye Resnick, what could go wrong? This chat, though, is much more than just the Real Housewives of Beverly Hills or Bravo TV. We talk to Taylor about it all. We talk about the abuse that she was suffering, the domestic abuse that she was then suffering at the hands of her then husband, Russell Armstrong. We cover this topic in extreme and grave detail. What was going through Taylor's mind when she got the show? Did she want it to come out? Was this a cry for help? Did she think if this got out on such a national level that it couldn't be taken back and it could possibly save her life? Or was she filming every day knowing that at night she had to answer to someone and explain, was she able to hide this secret for yet another day? A lot of what you are going to hear is sensitive material. If anyone has any trigger warnings associated with domestic abuse, domestic violence, I just want to let everyone know this talk that we are about to have goes there. We talk about whether the women knew, whether the producers knew, a lot of information that Taylor has never shared before. We're about to get into it in pretty grave detail. I just want to let you guys know you're about to hear that. Of course, we keep it light. We talk about whether she ever wants to come back. I mean, after all of that, we, we that's not exactly a light subject. But after all of that, we come back. We talk about whether she would ever go back. Would she go back to the RHOC? She does live in Orange County now. Guys, we are about to get into it all with Taylor. Before we welcome Taylor, I just wanted to say that I am not an expert on domestic violence, but Taylor is. She wrote a book on the subject called Recovering from Reality and spends her time traveling around to colleges and various events, speaking to victims of domestic violence. If you or a loved one are a victim of domestic violence, contact the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 1-800-799-7233 for confidential assistance from trained advocates. And now please join me in welcoming the one and only Miss Taylor Armstrong.
everyone. This is David. Welcome back behind the velvet robe. Let's just get right into it today because we are joined by the one, the only Miss Taylor Armstrong. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for doing this, Taylor. Really. You know, listen, I speak to a lot of people in this line of work. And then, you know, there's some people I get excited to speak to, and I'm just so excited to speak to you. And I'm not just saying that. Okay. Well, thank you. <laughs> How are you today? And where are you? Are you in the OC? I am in the OC and I run into some of the OC girls sometimes, which is fun. And um, yeah, I'm in the OC. I'm really happy and doing great. I am very, very good friends with Lynn Curtin. So when I was in town in November, she was like, should we call Taylor? And I'm like, yeah, we can should call her right now. But Lynn and I went out to dinner. It never happened. But she I talks see, about you all the time and how much, how wonderful you are. I love her. And I see her. She was at my house a couple months ago and I see her out. We run into each other a lot and I'm in love with her jewelry line and just so proud of her and all that she's done. I actually got one of her bracelets the other night. I was out to dinner with one of my friends and before I could even put it on, my friend bought it off me and I was like, wait. And then Lynn was like, wait, that was my last one. I wanted to. Have it. Was it, was it the lion cuff? It was the lion cuff. Okay, listen. So here's the thing. When Lynn was on this podcast, I told her I wanted the lion cuff. The lion cuff never came, but eventually I met her in Vegas. She gave me the lion cuff. And then the other night she was like, I just want to let you know you're going to have the same bracelet as Taylor. So there you go. So you and I are connected through this lion cuff. I like it. I love it. So let's just get right into it and talk about the past before we get to the present and all the great work you're doing. Here's the thing. When I was sitting down to prepare for this interview, I mean, I was shocked that it's been 11 years since Beverly Hills premiered. Like, am I, does it seem like yesterday or does it seem like forever ago to you? You know, it's twofold for me because my life has changed so much and everything that I went through on camera and off and then seeing Kennedy turned four at the tea party season one and she's 15 now. So that's a big reality check for us seeing how our kids have grown. Yeah. I mean that tea party, you know, you set the bar really high for four-year-old birthday parties, Taylor. <laughs> I got a lot of heat for it, but it was fun. But it's Beverly Hills. And so like, what's $50,000 on a four-year-old's birthday party, right? Yeah, and people would be disappointed. Where am I going to take her to McDonald's? No, you are not going to take her to McDonald's. But if you look at like fans in the Bravo world, a lot of fans and people will say like that first season of Beverly Hills is amongst, you know, their favorite. So you said on Twitter in 2019, like one of the reasons you tell her is like, oh God, what did I say? But right. you said like, you know, you thought it was really because like you guys were real friends. Like, is that what you attribute of to that first season? Like you were all really real friends at that time. Absolutely. I think we were so emotionally connected because we cared about one another. And for me, I don't get really get riled up with people that I don't like or I don't care for. So I think the tensions ran so high and the drama was so extreme because we actually cared what each other thought and about protecting one another. I think that that bond is something that without that, it becomes very artificial television. I think so too. And like, I mean, I think you can tell, especially now, like as a viewer of reality TV, like what's real and what's not real. 100%. And I think that first season is amongst the best. I mean, if you look at like top 10, like most iconic moments in Real Housewives of Beverly Hills history, we have like Lisa Rinna and her bunny with like Kim Richards. We have, you know, 
Ken telling Kyle to get out of the house, but the dinner party from hell. I mean, this was a dinner party from hell before we knew what dinner parties from hell were. <laughs> was that the defining moment of dinner parties from hell? <laughs> I, I really think this is the, as far as I remember, and I've watched it all, I think this is the first dinner party from hell, like in Housewives history. So you were there, Taylor. I mean, was it as off the rails as it seemed from a viewer's point of view? The dinner party from hell started out as me thinking, okay, Camille and Kyle are definitely going to go at it. Kim's going to chime in at me for what reason? I have no idea because she's a little cuckoo. And then this Alison Dubois piece, I didn't know what we were getting into. I actually like the show medium. I think it's such an interesting, was such an interesting concept. And then at first it seemed very staged the way she was acting. And it was like the crazy psychic personality. And then as the dinner party went on, it just seemed like crazy and forget psychic. I mean, were you ever able to watch Medium after that? Well, I think Medium got canceled shortly after that. And I have no idea if it has any relationship to the whole thing, but it was a little coincidental. Listen, Faye Resnick, Alison Dubois, and an e-cigarette. I mean, this will go down (laughs) in history. I assume she gets free e-cigarettes for the rest of her life because she did more for an e-cigarette in that during that dinner party than I think anyone has ever done. Well, and I remember Camille in the beginning when we were having our specialty cocktail, she said, don't let Allison drink too much because she gets crazy. And I'm thinking we all get crazy when we drink too much, but that girl can take it to another level. It was some of the best TV, especially for Real Housewives of Beverly Hills. But, you know, you came up with you're like the soothsayer of the group. You know, you asked, who is this dead person on the other side that is telling Kyle that Mauricio will never fulfill her? So Taylor Armstrong, the voice of reason. (laughs) I'll take that. (laughs) That was, you know, I was like, okay, what was going through your mind? Like throughout all this, you just were like, Allison is insane and off the charts. Well, and then when she started getting, you know, it's one thing for us to argue, but when it starts going below the belt, like saying things about, I love Kyle and Mauricio and they have an incredible marriage. And she started saying things about, I think Kyle being dead and Mauricio not fulfilling her. And I was like, okay, this chick's going to start cutting below the belt and it's just going to get worse from here. And I, I think it just spun completely out of control before any of us realized how nuts it was going to be. And that was the first season. So at that point you were probably like, were you saying, what did I sign up for? (laughs) There were definitely times when I was thinking that I think more for me in season two, I was thinking what the hell have I done to myself and my life? Um, just because of all of the drama around my marriage and um, the abuse and everything. So that was really the moment when I thought, wow, did I make a huge mistake? So I want to tell you guys about our new sponsor who, I mean, they're paying me. So I really have no choice, but to tell you guys about them, right? Listen, they're called the commercial break comedy podcast. This podcast is about two best friends, Brian and Chrissy, and they get in the studio and they take a break from this very serious world. And the thing is they share stories about their own lives, things that like you may not really care about. They give horrible life advice and they just discuss the most absurd things that you probably don't give an F about. They talk about cat attorneys, ghost hunters. They talk about all this crap and I'm just like, who cares? But you know what? 
Joke's on me because the commercial break is consistently ranked in Apple's top 100 comedy podcasts and a top 10 Apple improv comedy podcast. You know how hard that is, guys? Trust me, I know. They also have a 4.9 star rating on Apple, which I'm completely jealous of that. And they're Chartable's number one trending podcast globally three times in the past year. The commercial break has new episodes each Monday, Wednesday, and Friday on all podcast players and full episodes in daily clips available on the YouTube channel at youtube.com slash the commercial break. Or you can visit tcbpodcast.com for more info. That's T as in Tom, C as in cat, B as in butter, podcast.com. So when you have a chance, listen, take a listen to our new paid friends on the commercial break, anywhere you like to listen to your podcast or visit tcbpodcast.com. You guys know I work from home and because of that, I travel a lot and I'm never in one place for very long. And that's why when it came to my mental health, the only option I could see was Talkspace. Talkspace is kind of like having a therapist in your pocket. I personally, and you too, can reach out to your therapist or psychiatrist anytime from anywhere. And it just makes taking care of mental health so easy. When I'm away and I need to talk to my therapist, I just send a message from wherever, you know, I can work through things. It's so easy. You can sign up online and basically start therapy the same day you sign up. You can text, video, or send voice messages to your licensed therapist. So it's just easy. It's convenient. It's literally like you don't have to leave your home. And it's also, I mean, this is the greatest part, I think. Well, one of the greatest parts, it's affordable. It's a fraction of the cost of in-person therapy. Instead of waiting for an appointment, you can send unlimited messages 24 seven, they'll engage with you literally, you know, any day. So listen, as a listener of this podcast, you get $100 off your first month with Talkspace. To match with a licensed therapist today, go to Talkspace.com. Make sure to use the code VELVET to get $100 off of your first month and show your support for the show, right? That's nice. That's VELVET and Talkspace.com. I could see that. And I mean, one of the scenes that sticks out for me regarding like your marriage and the abuse was that scene in Lisa Vanderpump's house when it was you and Camille and Kyle and Lisa, you were going to confront Lisa for apparently leaking stories to us weekly about you and Russell. And then Camille somehow was fighting Lisa's fight, a theme that we see throughout many seasons to come. You know, and then, I mean, that's where it really kind of first came out to the viewer, like, or at least the first mention of this abuse. So what was going through your mind, you know, when you're filming this show in season one and it's just put out there for season two? Yeah, in season two at the tea party when- Sorry, Camille, season two. In, yeah, in season two when Camille out of the abuse, I remember looking at our field producer who was standing across from me along with the cameras and I was in shock. I had no idea what to say, but I knew staring at him, I just remembered the moment so specifically that I knew something in my life is about to change dramatically. And that could be, I could get killed, I could get divorced, or things might completely turn around and this could change my situation. But I knew once I walk out this door, my life truly will never be the same. So you truly felt that sitting there, like just because it was said, Yes, I was in shock. And I don't even know what my response was, if any, because I just remember sitting there completely stoic, like I have no idea what to say right now. Well, you denied it, more or less, which no judgments, because I'm going to get into all of that and all the work you're doing. But I mean, was that just your first reaction? I mean, you were probably used to just denying this at that point, right? 
Absolutely. In season one, an interesting backstory was um, I did Wendy Williams promoting the show with Adrian and Wendy Williams kind of in the middle of the interview, she said, he abuses you, doesn't he? And it was another one of those like, what? Like I'm on national television. Of course, I'm going to, I was like, what? No, I know. I don't even know what I said back to her, but she could see the dynamic in our relationship, even in season one. And that started coming out a lot on Twitter and, you know, in the tabloids and stuff like it's obviously these two have a messed up relationship, but she was the first person to say it publicly. And as you said, of course I denied it because that's what people do. Wow. I never knew that. I know there was chatter, but I never knew that Wendy Williams asked you on national TV. So when that's over and you deny it and then like you're with Adrian, because that was the thing in the season two reunion, I think Adrian said something like she wanted you to do the show so you would have your own money. And like that confused me. Like, did Adrian know, like, did people on the cast know or like the producers, like eventually, you know, before you kind of put it out there, like, did people know like the producers were in your home or no one really knew? Adrian and I were close a long time before we ever did Housewives. Our, our babies were in Mommy and Me together, and we spent a lot of time together. Um, our preschool in Beverly Hills, we'd go to coffee, and you know our kids would play together. So there was definitely a lot of tension in my marriage, and she knew that there was a lot of unhappiness there. And to that extent, I don't know how much she could read into it, but it definitely did not appear as a healthy relationship. And I know that's really one of the things she wanted for me was some chance to get out. And producers, like, do you think they had an idea and just like, you know, being in your house every day or no, you were really good at, you know, at that point at hiding it. Well, he was never really in the house with me. So rarely, maybe we shot there together a couple of times. So just in the day-to-day stuff, um, definitely, you know, my book was called Hiding from Reality for a reason. I was trying to hide my reality from reality. Yeah. And um I was just doing my best to keep a lid on a pot at home from exploding. And then the tension on the show, I mentioned to Andy recently, it, it was such a different scenario for me being on the show because I would have the tension of fighting with the girls all day. And then I'd go home to extreme tension at home. And so I never could catch my breath. And as I'm sure you recall, I became very, very thin and people, I was in the tabloids a lot for being anorexic. And it was so much more that I was so eaten up with anxiety over my daytime job and my home life combined. And I would have given anything to go back and be able to film the show now and be able to have a, be a strong woman in the day because I have a strong support system at home at night. Like I would, I have my Ken and my Mauricio now because I have my husband, John, and he would always back me up no matter what. And having that, I think would have helped me so much be able to be stronger on the cast. Well, yes, you did say on your recent Watch What Happens Live appearance when asked, you were one of the first and really one of the only to truly raise your hand and say that you would go back. Part of me wanting to go back in a way is that I would like for people to see the complete transformation that has occurred in my life. In season one, when the episode started airing, one of my very best friends from the time I was 18 years old called me and he said, I don't know who that girl is on that show, but it's not you. I've known you half your life and there's something wrong. You don't seem like yourself. You're not laughing. You're not your funny self. You know, he just said, what, I don't know what's going on with your life, but it's scaring me because you are like a ghost of who you used to be. And when I started watching the episodes, I really saw that for the first time as well. I was like, oh God, like I seem like a Stepford wife. Like I don't have any opinions. I'm not laughing. I'm not having fun. Like I had lost so much of myself just trying to constantly change 
for my spouse in order to keep him under control. I was trying to control my emotions, my laughter, my everything, because with abusers, you know, it's things like, oh, you laugh too much when you're with your friends. You don't laugh enough. You talk too much. You don't talk enough. Your hair is too long. Your hair is too short. Your dress is too long. Your dress is too short. You can never, ever win. So in the beginning, I was like, okay, laugh less. Oh, okay, laugh a little more. Like find that medium of laughing. Then talk less, talk more. You know, and so you're just always trying to adjust to keep things under control. And it's impossible with a control freak. You're never going to win that battle. Never. So, you know, listen, this was before Teresa and Joe had their legal issues in New Jersey. And it was before like all the stuff Erica's going through. So it was different, but you know, like you kind of knew maybe some, you know, like reality TV, I guess we still knew like stuff would come out. Like, was that a factor in your decision? Like, were you hoping this would come out? Like, was this like, I'm going to do this and I hope it comes out because once it's out on a national platform, there's no going back. And I'm not, and I don't want to put words in your mouth and I'm not able to get it out there. This will help. Or was it like, I'm doing this show and God help me. I have to protect this secret at all costs. Or was it both? I would say it was somewhat of a combination in that I thought, you know, abusers don't act out in public they act out in private. And so having the cameras around, and I, I think this was an unconscious thing at the time, but in looking back, I think I had hopes that if there were cameras around all the time and I was more of a public figure, that he would behave because he could be a good guy. We could have great times together. And so that's the hope that you have as a victim is that the good times are gonna last longer than the bad times. And you keep thinking if you keep, as I said, changing to to keep that lid on the pot and you keep providing more people around you, you know, more family and friends and more social gatherings that that individual being out in public, it's going to be less volatile. Um, and at first it was, I think that he felt like he felt he was going to be loved. He was very narcissistic and he thought that America was going to fall in love with them and he could be really charming. So I think he thought he could ride that wave. And at first he was better. And then, you know, with someone like that, who's a rageaholic, you can only fake it for so long. One thing I know for certain is this audience, all of you listening, you guys just cannot get enough of these celebrity interviews that I do. Listen, I'm already doing six shows a week, guys. I can't do any more, but I have the answer for you. Your prayers have been answered. There is a podcast called The Envelope, and it's also, guess what, a celebrity-based podcast. It's from the LA Times. That's right. The hosts, Yvonne and Mark, they're actually LA Times entertainment reporters. They're way more professional than I am, and they interview people during various award seasons in Hollywood. Now, let me skip through all of that and tell you about their guests. I'm, I have green with envy. They have interviewed Jane Fonda and Lily Tomlin, Grace and Frankie. Hello, Jennifer Coolidge. Oh my God. Jessica Beale. I mean, the things that I would ask Jessica Beale about Justin Timberlake, I can't even imagine. David Harbour from Stranger Things. The first six episodes are available to binge right now. That's right, right now. Because later in July, more episodes are coming out. So you have to binge the first six right now. Listen, you can download and listen to all these episodes of The Envelope wherever you get your podcast. Again, Lily Tomlin and Jane Fonda, Jessica Beale, Jennifer Coolidge. You will not be disappointed. The Envelope, listen now, everywhere you get your podcast. I am obsessed. Right. So a little bit of both. And I mean, isn't it true? And, you know, like 
part of the profile of an abuser is like that they are charming in public like that's they could charm people and that's part of people saying like it can't be that person 100% and the other challenging thing as you bring that up with the girls and I think especially Adrian over the over time I would get very upset we'd have a huge fight and I would cry to my friends and then we would go to a charity event and I would have my arm around his arm and hoping that everybody would be nice to him because I didn't want him to know that they knew that I was sharing what was going on at home. And it was so confusing to them to hear me so upset and crying and then turn around and be like, hi guys, you know, with him. And it, they were like, we don't get it. Like, how can you be with this horrible person and act like everything's fine and expect us to like him? Right. So it was better at first, the cameras and that's interesting too, that he thought that America would love him. And that was part of his, is that how you, I mean, how did you get him to agree? Was that how you got him to agree to do the show or that you were going to sign up? Cause I imagine you needed his approval, right? Oh yeah. I mean, he was all for it. He thought it was going to be great. He thought it'd be great for his business. You know, he saw all the upside and also with abusers and my former husband, um, I don't think that they always know that they're an abuser. They're going to convince you that you bring this out of me. You're the one that causes this. No one like this, but all the red flags were there in my relationship. Truly. He had years of court ordered anger management with his first wife. Now that should have been a big red flag in the beginning, but <laughs> some of us run right by red flags, unfortunately. And that's part of the profile too, right? You just kind of sweep the red flags under the rug. Well, absolutely. And you want to believe in the person that you're with and the person that you're falling in love with. And so when they say, oh, my exes were both crazy. Well, eventually I realized there was one common denominator to the crazy and it wasn't the women. Right. Did you, when you had that scene with like LVP and Camille and Kyle, and then like, you know, you denied it because you were in shock. Do you ever go back to something like that or like a moment and we're just like, this was handed to me. Like it was handed to me on a silver platter. You know, like, I think like I had a very easy coming out of being gay. Like my parents one day were like, you're gay. Right. And I'm like, yeah, great. Like, thank God you asked because like, I don't know how else I would have done this, but you know what I mean? Like when someone hands it or no, you just were like, deny, deny, deny. Or was it like, that was, a you know, one of many moments where it was handed to me and I could have just said, yes. Oh, I wish I could go back and be brave enough to have done that. Um, there were so many consequences that I feared. You know, I had a child with this person and he had severe anger management problems and they would come out of nowhere. And the thought of sharing custody with a little girl, with someone who can't control themselves was something I was not prepared to handle. And he would frequently threaten me, especially days after we had really severe abuse. He would say, I'm afraid I'm going to kill you someday. And so those fears overrode the idea of let me just out this and, and get it out there. Plus I was so insecure at the time and so broken down that I would have never found the strength that I have now. And is that the psychology behind it? You know, with like most women that are abused or most people that are abused in the sense that like you're beaten down, like it's an emotional warfare as well. Like you're just told you're not good enough. And like, you truly believe I'm not good enough. And is that what it is? hundred percent. I think that the emotional, I don't even think, I know the emotional words, we call it playing the tapes, you know, playing those tapes over and over when you have a bad fight. Um, those stay with you 
forever. I mean, I have a titanium implant on my face, but I don't think about it unless I'm talking about it. But the words, those are the things that you replay in your head. And I talk about, you know, when I, when I was with Kennedy and I would be laying on her in her playroom, coloring with her, I wasn't thinking about Kennedy or coloring. I was thinking about what's it going to be like when he gets home tonight? Is there going to be another explosion? What happened last night? And replaying all those tapes in my head of how to try to keep that under control for yet another night. And then what could happen tomorrow? And so I lost a lot of years of being present in my life, just worrying about the next shoe. Yeah, that's a lot to have on your mind. And for you, I know, was it like that? Where, like, I know you've said in the past too, like it was, you know, if I get a divorce from this person, my child is now with this person alone. That was part of it, unsupervised. Right. And the psychological, like you're putting, you know, you're being put down. And then was it also like, I know you talked about like the financial ruin, like he was the provider. That was a huge part of it too. Absolutely. And financial control is a huge component with abusers. And it's very common. Um, he wanted to have complete financial control. And I think that was another thing that was confusing to people because I had a black American express. I had nice cars, a nice house. And that isn't what people envision a domestic violence victim as looking like from the exterior. And I can tell you over the years in working with shelters and victims and survivors that I have met so many women who were under financial control from very wealthy men. And they felt just as isolated and afraid as people in lesser socioeconomic conditions. But he would threaten me constantly, go ahead, leave. I'll drag you through the court system. I'll bankrupt you. I'll bankrupt your family. And then they'll find you an unfit mother. You'll be living on the street. And then I'll take your daughter. And those kinds of things, when you're in the moment, are actually believable with someone like that. And the truth of the matter is, now I know as being an advocate, that there are so many programs out there, legal services and other services that provide for families in the same situation so that the person that has superior wealth can't crush the other person when it comes to custody and divorce. So how did you not crack like during filming? Like, okay, so you're trying to keep this secret, which you've kept, you've been trying to keep it your whole life. You're sitting there worrying about what's going to happen tonight. Then you're filming with the girls and there's this other drama, which is reality TV, you know, and you don't want this to come out. And maybe you're secretly hoping it comes out on a national platform because then there's no backseas. Like that's a lot, Taylor. I think I did crack a few times, honey. <laughs> well, you, you know, you cracked a few times, but no more than, you know, many of our other housewives that we've come to love over the past 11 years. <laughs> you know? Well, um, I, looking back, I think, oh my gosh, I, it's interesting because when I speak and I tell my story, even talking to you, I see that as another person. When I look back over those years, it doesn't even look like me or feel like me. And I talk to my psychiatrist, Dr. Sophie about it a few years ago. And I just said, is it strange that it doesn't have an impact on me anymore? And I said, is that because I'm blocking it out? Or, and he said, no, it's because you're moving on. And I look at it and think I could not have been that person that would have tolerated all of that. It just blows my mind that I allowed all of that to happen and that I didn't do more for myself and my child. And I have so many regrets around that, but it is like a separate life. And when the meme came out, speaking of me losing control, people were like, oh, I feel so bad. You know, the meme, does it upset you? Does it bring up a lot of emotions? And the truth of the matter is it doesn't. I think the memes are hysterical, but that moment when I see that girl completely losing control doesn't even look like me to me. You don't recognize yourself because you've changed so much. Correct. 
let's talk about this meme for a minute, which <laughs> you have this scene, yes, with Camille and, you know, you're crying and yes, there was a cat meme, which went viral, Taylor. So, I mean, it reached the then president of the United States. <laughs> they were tweeting about it in the White House. So where were you when, like, who sent you this? Like, was it a friend? Was it one of the housewives? Like, how did you find out about this meme? I think the first one was sent to me by a friend and I'm not, a, I'm not real big on social media all the time anymore. And so they had, I think someone sent it to them on Facebook and they sent it to me. And then it was, it was woman yelling at cat and it kept coming up everywhere. And I don't think people realized it was me at first. And so it just, but it just kept perpetuating. And I thought people are really creative. The stuff they came up with, they have a lot of time on their hands and <laughs> maybe should get a hobby or something, but it was hysterical. Are you like, well, why are my Instagram followers going up? And even though you're not big on social media, you're like, why is my name being on Google alerts like night and day over the week? What, what, what did I do? It was funny at first because Kyle and I were like texting each other and we both kept saying, I don't get it. And I don't get it. And she was like, I still don't get it. And it was going on and on and on. And then I, there was just one the other day and I think they started in 2019 and I have done interviews recently about the meme. So I don't know. It just, it's the never ending meme. <laughs> what do people ask you about the meme the most? Cause I know it does keep coming up in interviews. Yeah. Um, I think just that was such a tense moment for me. And does it have an effect on me? Does it bother me? I did an interview the other day and I think they were shocked to find out that it doesn't bother me and that I mean, it's a horrible face I'm making. Let's just say I'm not a pretty crier. But um, other than that, I, I think they're funny. And I know there was a lot of criticism, too, of like, you know, I think people were like, you know, how could she be laughing at this? But I mean, it is you and you've moved on. And like, you, have, there's, you know, it's a cat meme. Like, it doesn't diminish what you went through, right? No, it doesn't. And that was such a horrible moment that the fact that someone has made light of it in some way is actually a little bit more of a relief than how I felt in that moment. Reading your book, Hiding from Reality, I found out, because I've learned stuff from reading your book, which I found this was 80% of domestic abuse victims remain silent. So is that like just forever? I mean, that's, or is it just for a long period of time? Or is it that many that just live with this? That's a good question. I think that a lot of people live with it because they're not able to completely convince themselves that they're abused. There's so many different kinds of abuse. And my abuser would say, you have this house, you have a nanny, you have this, you have that. Oh, you're so abused. Like, I feel so bad for you. And then I would wrap my head around it because I wanted to and think to myself, okay, well, that's not what abuse looks like. And so people that are just emotionally abused for years and years and years, they, I think, have more of a tendency to stay because they haven't been struck. And it took me seeing my eye, you know, radiographic evidence of a fractured orbital floor for me to finally go, okay, I'm leaving. And there were plenty of things along the way that should have been that last straw, but it really truly took me that long to convince myself that I was worth leaving. And that was the moment. It was the orbital fracture that you were just like, that's truly it. Yeah, it was truly it. I mean, once I met with the ocular plastic surgeon and he showed me the damage and told me what was going to have to happen, that I was going to have to reconstruction, I thought, am I crazy? Like, what am I doing? Especially when someone has told me time and time again, I'm afraid I'm going to kill you. I mean, that's one step away from losing your eye. I mean, a lot of other things could have happened along the way. And um, I, I was scared years later that I had a, 
another crack because I was having some allergy problems, but he used to bang my head against things a lot. And so we were worried that I might have a cerebrospinal fluid leak from a crack. So I had some other CAT scans and things done just to make sure there wasn't any past damage. But when you're doing things like that, you know, and you're talking to someone about my cerebrospinal fluid leak potential, um, you think, what the hell was I doing? What, how would I ever allow someone to hurt me that badly? Right. Like when you're talking about it, like, you know, do we want a martini or, you know, some tequila tonight? Let's just make a decision and go. These are big things, Taylor. <laughs> you know, I they mean, certainly are. They certainly are. But I've met so many women and I believe that the average is that physical abuse, they return an average of seven times. So they get the courage wow. to leave and then they go back and, you know, time and time again, seven times is the average before they finally leave. Wow. And as far as I'm going to kill you, that was that truly a fear of yours or it was more the immediate, like I'm going to get bit, you know, my head hit against the wall tonight, or was it really like, I am afraid I'm going to be dead. I definitely thought in that moment when Camille out of the abuse that he would potentially kill me. Wow. And that's probably why you denied it. You know, that's your first go-to. Oh, hundred percent. And, um, he was a really tough guy and he had been in a lot of street fights growing up. And, uh, I met a man in Beverly Hills one time and he's, um, they were laughing about it at a party and he's like, Oh yeah, your husband kicked my butt one night. He came over to my house and he beat him up so badly and then dragged him into a swimming pool. And then had, they had to pull him out and resuscitate him because he was going to kill the guy. And then it happened later after my abuse came out, he did the same to a friend of mine's fiance and knocked all of his teeth out and held him down in the pool. He had me in the pool. And I think he was definitely trying to, my friend's fiance was trying to get me out of the situation and he was, he would have been more than happy to drown us both. Wow. Did you see these signs like before you were married, like these red flags? Like, was it that early on or it just all started after you were married? Well, sadly, I saw a lot of red flags in the beginning and it was mainly jealousy and control. And a sad truth about jealousy and control is sometimes for people who are insecure, like I was, it feels a little bit like protection. You know, I grew up without a father. And so it's like a little bit of a knight in shining armor feeling like, oh, he doesn't want me talking to other men because he likes me so much. And he does, he wants me to um, look a, a certain way because he thinks I'm prettier this way. You know, and, and you can convince yourself or I could convince myself everything that was coming at me was at first more Prince Charming than it was actual jealousy and control. But the red flags were 100% there. They were always there. Yeah. I love talking to colleges and university students um, when I travel around because I feel like it's their first opportunity to out of their parents' home to really get in an unhealthy relationship and to talk about all the things that I did wrong throughout my history of relationships and just say, these are the things you need to look for. You know, the control, the jealousy, all of those things are just going to get worse. And talking with young people, they ask so many questions and they're so interested. And I really love that age range. Yeah, I find and I know you do a lot of work now, you know, traveling around and speaking about this. Is it, I guess, I mean, I imagine it's very rewarding to help these people, but was it 
oh, I mean, is there any part of you, you know, like why, you know what I mean? Like, is there any part of you that like, here you are with me? Is this hard? Like, is it hard to talk about over and over as you travel around and give these lectures and try to help the world? I pretty much cry every time still. And I think I cry because you almost made me cry just now. Um, I cry because I'm sad for that girl who spent so much time. Like I said, I look at it as another person really. And I think about knowing that anyone else could allow that many things to happen and that much torment to happen. And then anytime I talk about my daughter, you can just bring on the waterworks. And surprisingly, it still, <laughs> it still has that effect on me. Well, if you cry here, you won't be the first person to cry in the Behind the Velvet Rope <laughs> podcast. So we, we allow that. So you eventually filed for divorce. Do you, and then, right. So you, you filed for divorce and then shortly thereafter, Russell committed suicide. Correct. So then I, I mean, do you, this is neither here nor there, but do you go there and say, what if he didn't commit suicide? Like, were you really leaving? Oh yeah, we went there. We always go there. So listen, we're about to get into Russell's suicide, how Taylor felt about that. I mean, my biggest question is what is the range of emotions and where does relief factor into this? I mean, someone has lost their life, but where does relief factor into this? We talk more about her current life with Kennedy and her current husband. We talk about so much more. And we are going to talk about, of course, housewives. So we are just getting started with this just so open and honest and candid chat with Taylor Armstrong. Stay tuned for part two coming very soon. Thanks for listening to yet another episode of Behind the Velvet Rope. Because without you listeners, I would just be a crazy person with voices in my head. And if you like what you hear, subscribe, subscribe, subscribe on Apple Podcasts under Behind the Velvet Rope. And when you're done subscribing, feel free to leave a five-star write-up review because the write-up reviews actually count. We read each and every one of them. We post the best ones and the reviews really help our shows keep going. And we really appreciate everything you guys say, especially the positive ones. And if you want to find us online, we're at Behind Velvet Rope on Instagram. We are at David Yontef on Instagram. We're behind the Velvet Rope on Apple Podcasts. Or head on over to Patreon, because you know what? There are just some things we can't talk about here. So for our bonus episodes, go to Patreon and type in Behind the Velvet Rope. And if you still aren't sick of me and you want more David, go to Cameo and book me on Cameo. And you can ask me anything there. I'll answer whatever you want. And I have a bargain basement price of $10. Thank you guys. See you soon.